0: Welcome back to Plane Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot Des Latham. This is episode 31. We're focusing on Air Canada Flight 797, which developed an in-flight fire that turned into a conflagration after it landed and the doors were opened. 23 passengers were burned to death or asphyxiated in that terrible incident. The response to this was crucial to global aviation safety as it led to rules such as airline manufacturers having to ensure that planes could be evacuated inside 90 seconds visible lights to be placed on the floor, smoke detectors on all the flights, and firefighter training for the crew and briefing passengers sitting in exit rows. Air Canada Flight 797 was an international passenger flight operating from Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport to Montreal-Dorval International Airport with one stop at Toronto-Pearson International. It took off from Dallas-Fort Worth International at 1625 local time on the 2nd of June 1983. The plane, a McDonnell Douglas DC-932, Registration Charlie Foxtrot Tango Lima uniform. Fifty one year old Donald Cameron was the captain in charge and had thirteen thousand hours flight time, four thousand four hundred and ninety-three in the DC nine, and had been flying with Air Canada since March nineteen sixty-six. First Officer Claude Humet was thirty-four and had flown for Air Canada since November nineteen seventy-three. He had five thousand six hundred and fifty hours of flight time, including two thousand four hundred and ninety-nine in the DC nine, and had qualified as a DC nine first officer in February 1979. All was normal until the plane was overhead Louisville in Kentucky when the pilots heard a popping sound during dinner service, time 1800 hours 51. The laboratory's circuit breakers had tripped. Captain Cameron tried to reset the switches, but they popped right back out. Both pilots said later this was not unusual. It happened often in the DC-9 that the circuit breakers would pop out during the dinner service because passengers often headed off to the toilet after eating. This caused the light to go on and off repeatedly and the fan would run virtually non-stop so the heat buildup could pop the circuit breakers. The air crew waited eight minutes so that the circuits could cool down then tried resetting them at 1800 hours 59. Still no go, the breakers popped right back out again. One minute later, a passenger seated in the last row called flight attendant Judy Davidson over and said there was a strange odour coming from the rear of the plane. Davidson traced the odour to the lavatory and opened the door. The toilet was full of light grey smoke. There weren't any flames, nor was there any sign of a full-blown fire, so she closed the door and headed back up the aisle, and Chief Flight Attendant Sergio Benetti was called to inspect the problem. He opened the door and entered the toilet. Benetti saw black smoke curling out from the seams around the walls of the lavatory. Another bad sign. At the front of the plane, the pilots still could not reset the circuit breakers. The passengers at the back were moved forward, then the toilet was sprayed with a CO2 fire extinguisher. The flight attendants opened all the air vents, blowing fresh air through the cabin. One of their attendants then hurried to the flight deck at 1900 hours 02 and told Captain Cameron there was a fire in the washroom. As per standard operating procedure, Cameron donned his oxygen mask, turning the 0 02 to full bore, and ordered the first officer to go back and investigate. By now, thick black smoke had swirled into the rear cabin, and covered the last three rows. First officer Mia couldn't make it to the toilet, the smoke was so thick. It's what happened next that is the key to understanding how this ended up very badly. The flight attendant crucially said he didn't believe the fire was in the trash bin, often a source of blazes, because back in 1983, smoking was permitted on planes, and sometimes smokers would drop their smouldering butts into the waste paper bins with obvious results. Umay headed back to the flight deck two minutes later and suggested to Captain Cameron that they descend and head to the nearest airport, but for some reason he didn't pass on the critical bit of information from Benetti that the smoke was not emanating from the trash bin. This would have alerted the captain to a much more serious problem involving the electronics. At this point, the captain had jumped to the conclusion that it was a fire in the waste paper bin. Technically, a bin fire is easy to sort. An electrical fire behind the lavatory is a completely different can of worms. Then, to confuse matters further, the smoke in the cabin thinned out, so Benetti stuck his head through the flight deck door once more and told the captain that the passengers were fine. He had moved them and the smoke was easing up. Cameron dispatched the first officer back to check on matters to try and see how things were going. In his mind, the waste bin fire had now been extinguished. Moments later, Benetti repeated that the smoke was indeed easing So Cameron decided to hold off, declaring an emergency. Of course, every second from now on was going to add to the deadly effect of a fire that was burning out of sight behind the lavatory. Seconds later, at around 1900 hours and six minutes, the master caution lights lit up. The plane had lost the main bus electrical power. This was much more serious. Cameron now knew that things were critical and things moved extremely fast from here on. He called the air traffic controller in Indianapolis and notified them that Flight 797 had an electrical problem. Flight 797's transponder signal disappeared from ATC radar displays moments later, and now ATC had to monitor the flight by switching to primary radar tracking. Meanwhile, First Officer Ume was approaching the back of the plane on his second inspection. As he reached for the lavatory door handle, he felt it was hot to the touch and decided not to open it. Umei told the flight attendants to keep the lavatory door closed and hurried back to the flight deck, where he told Cameron, I don't like what's happening. I think we'd better go down, okay. Cameron was about to respond when the flight deck master warning light lit up. The situation was now even worse because it meant that the plane had lost the emergency electrical power as well. The effect was immediate. The horizontal stabilizer had now jammed in cruising position, It needs electrical power to help facilitate movement. From now on, Cameron and Ume would be flying the plane with their muscle power alone, and this was going to be exhausting, even for a few minutes. Cameron and First Officer Ume had to work jointly to try somehow land this jetliner. Both flight recorders had also stopped working, and a number of other systems shut down. The time, 1900 hours and 8 minutes, and the DC-9 was now in an emergency descent, and Captain Cameron declared mayday, mayday, mayday to Indianapolis, ATC. Air Canada
1: 797, Cincinnati Approach, Altimeter 3003, Ident, Plan Runway 36, ILS, the went to Cincinnati 2204, and uh, we are VFR. Can you make it to the airport? Air Canada 797, that's Florida. Roger, Plan Runway 36, ILS, and the equipment has been alerted. Do you have time to give me the nature of the emergency? We have a fire in the, wash, in the back washroom, and it, uh, we're fill up, uh, filling up with uh, smoke right now. Understand sir, and say type of airplane, uh, number of people on board, and amount of fuel. Okay, we'll copy that later. I don't
0: have that now. The controllers granted Flight 797 clearance to descend for an emergency landing at Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International Airport in Boone County. Without power and with limited panel now in operation, the ATC had to direct the pilots using a no-gyro approach, with traffic control watching Flight 797 on radar and directing the flight based on radar positions and headings.
1: Air Canada 797? Okay, we check, uh, We don't have any headings anymore. Uh, all we have is a, a small horizon. Air Canada 797, say it again. We have no heading, we have no instrument. Uh, all we have is an horizon right now. Can you give me a heading, uh, Air Canada 797? Stand by, we'll try. Air Canada 797, if able, turn left. Air Canada 797, turning left. 797, thank you. Stop turn, your radar contact. Your position is 1-2 miles southeast of Cincinnati Airport. A no gyro-surveillance approach for runway 27 left. You're cleared to land on that runway that went 2204. Air Canada 797, the uh, minimum descent altitude for runway 27 left, 1,280 feet. And uh, the weather is uh, good VFR here. You should have no problem picking up the runway at that uh, altitude. Canada 797, uh, we have no contact. Air Canada 797, roger. You're one four miles southeast of the airport. Continue your left turn. Continue left turn. We don't see the airport. Air Canada 797. Understand, sir. Advise me when your VFR conditions. We're VFR now. We don't see the airport.
0: Understand. I'm turning you to the airport. Air Canada 797. A no-gyro approach, just for clarification, is an ATC term referring to the loss of primary heading instruments. And those terminal facilities that have radar can then guide the plane to land. So there are two types of radar approaches. The airport surveillance radar, ASR approach, and the precision approach radar, PAR approach, at least back in those days. In both cases, the controller provided course guidance and altitude information to the pilot via radio comms. Back on board Flight 797, things were worsening quickly. The smoke had now thickened once more and was billowing through the passenger cabin it was also wafting into the flight deck. The onboard PA system had failed, so the cabin crew had to walk towards the aisle and ask the passengers to move forward of row 13 and then prepare for an emergency landing. They also had to begin explaining to passengers sitting in exit rows how to open the doors. This is one of the reasons why it's now standard practice on all airliners across the world for passengers sitting in these rows to be asked before takeoff if they would help in a time of emergency. Back in 1983, this was wasting precious time in an already frenzied situation. That's also why packs sitting in these rows are asked directly if they are prepared to help. If they say no, they are moved to another seat. The plane was approaching Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky International Airport. We have the airport at one uh, o'clock, is that it? Uh, Canada, 797. Uh,
1: while you present headed, So you might be looking at a satellite airport. I want to confirm at Cincinnati, 1230 and 12 miles. Air Canada 797, okay, we remain in in 2,000. Air Canada 797, you are clear to land on runway 27 left to win 230 at 4. For are clear to land. we don't see the runway. Air Canada 797, turn left. Air Canada 797, turning left and we see obstruction. Air Canada 797, stop your left turn. Air Canada 797. Where's the airport? 12 o'clock and 8 miles Air Canada 797. Okay, we are trying to locate it. Can the there uh, are people on the ground there. We're going to need uh, fire trucks. The trucks are standing by for you, Air Canada. Can you give me number of people and amount of fuel? We don't have time. It's getting worse, sir. I understand, sir. Uh, turn left now, and you're uh, just a half a mile north the final approach course. Turning left, Air Canada, 797. Give me full runway lights. Full runway lights. Air Canada, 797, stop turn. Canada, 797.
0: At 1920, Captain Cameron and First Officer Ume executed an extremely difficult landing at Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International. Here we have the
1: airport. Air Canada 797, proceed inbound for 2-7 left. You cleared to land when two three zero at at 4. 797. You're just a little bit north of the final approach course for runway 2-7 left, Air Canada 797. Okay, it's a bad fire. We're getting swamped. You're going to have to have the trucks come right up to him, he's got uh, smoke and fire on board. Okay. He does not have time to give me people or fuel. Okay. Air Canada 797, the equipment is waiting for you. You need not acknowledge further transmissions uh, from me, Air Canada 797, you are clear to land. You're four miles east of the airport. 497, the tower has you in sight, and you are clear to land. You're on a two-mile final for 27 left. The wind is 220 at 4. Okay, get the truck. Let me know he lands, please. He
0: landed. Okay. Four tires blew during the landing and hit the deck so hard, and once the DC-9 came to a stop, chief flight attendant Sergio Benetti opened the front door of the aircraft. The pilots quickly shut the airplane down. The overwing and forward aircraft doors were opened and slides at the front doors were deployed. The three flight attendants and 18 of the passengers evacuated using the exits, but the open doors created a firestorm and the flames arched through the fuselage. What was to compound the number of passengers who died was the time it took to get them out of this burning plane. This was before airlines and aircraft had to ensure that they could empty a plane within 90 seconds. 23 people were going to pay for the slow evacuation with their lives. 90 seconds after the doors opened, the interior of the plane flashed over and ignited, and within a few more seconds, it killed the remaining 23 passengers on board who died from smoke inhalation and burns from the flash fire. Of the 18 surviving passengers, 3 were seriously injured, 13 slightly injured, 2 escaped injury. While the passengers were evacuating, the pilots were unable to enter the passenger cabin because of the smoke and the heat. Second officer, Umay, escaped through the right emergency window, but Cameron was so exhausted from flying the plane without power he had passed out. Firefighters doused him in firefighting foam through the window, and Cameron was so shocked, he lurched back to consciousness and then managed to pull himself out of the left emergency escape window and dropped to the ground where Umay dragged him to safety. Captain Cameron was the last person to escape the plane. None of the five crew members sustained injuries. Twenty-one Canadians and two Americans died. Most of the bodies were burned beyond recognition. Almost all were found in the forward half of the aircraft, between the wings and the flight deck. Some were found in the aisle, a few still strapped in their seats. The flash fire had been so fast there was no time to move. Two of the victims were found in the rear of the aircraft, even though all passengers had been moved forward after the fire had been detected. The two had obviously become disorientated in the smoke and had died of high levels of cyanide, fluoride and carbon monoxide, chemicals produced by the burning plane. They weren't actually burned. This is why we are now told about the lights on the floor of planes, which you need to follow if you're on your hands and knees, in order to escape from flames and smoke. So the next time you fly, take careful note of the lights. They called the emergency floor path illumination. These now have to operate independently from the power supply to the main lighting systems. Don't forget to count the seats between you and the exit. Standard practice for all the aviators I know when we board commercial airliners. What caused the fire aboard Flight 797? The United States National Transportation Safety Board leapt into gear. The DC nine was badly damaged, but it wasn't destroyed. Most of the fuselage was still intact, although the forward section had been gutted. The cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorders were in good condition and produced vital data for the NTSB investigation, although they were switched off as their power melted down, as you've heard. Analyzing the CVR, NTSB investigators heard eight sounds of electrical arcing, which started at 1,800 hours 48. The arcing sounds repeated each time that the crew tried to reset the laboratory circuit breakers. Both pilots had not actually heard the arcing, only the breakers popping. Although a number of wires in the laboratory section were later found with insulation stripped away, NTSB investigators were unable to determine whether this had caused the fire or was caused by the fire. They looked over the history of the DC-9 and then found that this plane had an interesting past. It had experienced a number of problems over the months leading up to the incident, logging 76 maintenance reports over the past year alone. The captain had actually updated the logbook on the plane during the flight, telling the first officer, Ume to put the tripping breakers in the book there when the breakers failed to respond to the first reset attempt at 1800 hours 52. A few years earlier, however, in September 1979, something much more serious had taken place involving this DC-9. It was serving as Air Canada Flight 680 from Boston, Massachusetts to Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, and it suffered an explosive decompression in the rear bulkhead. The pilots had also managed to land safely, and the plane had its entire tail section rebuilt with much of the wiring replaced or spliced. But the NTSB said it could not find any link between this rebuild and the cause of the fire, and after a year of probing and prodding, they gave up, saying they did not know what started the fire behind the lavatory on board Flight 797. In August 1984, the NTSB issued a final report saying a fire of undetermined origin had led to the accident, compounded by the flight crew's underestimation of the fire's severity and conflicting fire progress information given to the captain. This report also found that the flight crew's delayed decision to institute an emergency descent contributed to the severity of the accident. That did not go down well with the pilots. It took issue with the phrase, delayed decision. A number of commercial pilots and operation personnel petitioned the NTSB to revise its report, and First Officer Uma in particular sent the NTSB a long and detailed defense of the crew's actions. He explained that they had to land at Cincinnati instead of Stanford Field Airport in Louisville, Kentucky, because the latter was too close for a safe emergency landing from cruising altitude. He reminded the NTSB that the plane was almost unflyable for most of the descent and landing was due to the brilliant aviation skills of both pilots. So in January 1986, the NTSB issued a new report where they remained critical of Captain Cameron's decision not to ask about the source of the fire more directly in the first minutes, just guessing it was in the trash bin. However, in its revised report, the NTSB said its probable cause-finding described fire reports given to Cameron as misleading instead of saying conflicting. The NTSB also removed the word delayed from its description of the pilot's decision to descend, instead listing the time taken to evaluate the nature of the fire and to decide to initiate an emergency descent as a contributing factor. Later, the crew of Flight 797 were honoured by multiple Canadian aviation organisations for their heroic actions in landing the plane safely. Of course, None of the above satisfied the families of those who died, and many remain convinced that the flight crew dithered instead of immediately declaring an emergency. The effect of this accident was global. This one accident caused a number of recommendations we live with today. First, smoke detectors have been ordered installed in all lavatories. Sorry for those of you who want to sneak off for your cigarette or vape. The detectors will trigger. That was known as Safety Recommendation A-83-70 just by the way, then safety recommendation A-83-71 required the installation of automatic fire extinguishers close to the toilets. Improvements to all aircraft included fire blocking seat materials, which limit both the spread of fire and toxic vapours, as well as that vital emergency track lighting at floor level, which must be strong enough to cut through the heaviest smoke where visibility is down to just a few centimetres. Other changes included raised markings on overhead bins which indicate the location of exit rows. That's to help passengers find the exits even when they are visually impaired by smoke. And all planes now carry handheld fire extinguishers using advanced technology extinguishing agents such as halon gas. Just out of interest, after the accident Air Canada sold the right wing of the DC-9 to Ozark Airlines to repair one of their damaged planes which had hit a snowplow. Air Canada has continued to use flight number 797, but it's now operating between Toronto Pearson International Airport and LA International. Next episode comes courtesy of a listener called Wendy W., who suggested we take a look at the crash involving golfer Payne Stewart in October 1999. If you remember, this was the cabin pressure incident that killed all six aboard the Learjet, which then crashed after it ran out of fuel. Thanks, Wendy. We'll check that out in episode 32. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps increase visibility. If you want to contact me, you can email through the sites desmondlatham.com or desmondlatham.blog. And you can even direct message me on Twitter, no blue tick required, at deslatham. Until next, Aviate navigates and communicates safely. Goodbye.